welcome our listeners to another episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Located in New York City, I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe Partners and Community Ambassador for Energy Central. Joining me is my colleague, Matt Chester, Community Manager for Energy Central and located in Orlando, Florida. Matt, how are you doing today? Hi, Jason. Uh, feels good to be back in the proverbial podcast studio with you once again. Uh, as this year has gotten fully underway, it definitely seems like we're, we're starting to see some important utility sector stories take hold. And I, I've connected with today's guests on energycentral.com numerous times, and I know how critical this topic is, so I'm just excited to dive into it with them. So I'll say let's just get right into it, Jason. Excellent. It's great to hear. For our listeners, I'd like to share that since 1995, Energy Central has been a trusted news and information source for professionals working in the power industry. Today, Energy Central is more than just a news source. Energy Central is a network of community groups focused on specific topics in the industry. Our managed communities are a place where professionals like you can come together to share, learn, and connect in a collaborative environment. We invite you to become a member, if you haven't already, and join 200,000 other professionals working in the power industry. To join, just visit www.energycentral.com, and membership is free. Our next guest is living the expression, flying the plane while building it. Dick Brooks is front and center, helping to shape the capacity markets in New England, and is advising and influencing key decision makers who are stepping into uncharted territory on the energy supply. The outcome of his work could impact the future of the wholesale capacity markets nationwide as we know it. He has recently been busy with major discussions on this topic with legislators, regulators, and influential government officials, which we'll discuss shortly. It's a pleasure to have you on today's episode of Power Perspectives. Well, thanks very much, gentlemen. I'm happy to be here. Our listeners will quickly realize that our guest has vast and deep knowledge in the New England capacity market. Dick Brooks spent nearly two decades with the ISO in New England, building the ISO's business intelligence and data analytics platform. He has extensive experience building and managing technical teams, focusing in areas of risk management, cybersecurity, and marketing monitoring operations in the energy field. He has won many awards, industry recognitions, and holds patents on various technical applications. Dick Brooks is currently CEO of Reliable Energy Analytics, a consulting company focused on the data and security analytics of the energy industry. He is a prolific contributor to Energy Central with 56 articles, over 300 comments, and has accumulated over 112,000 views of his work, which all can be found on Energy Central platform. Now let's get to the meat of the matter. Massachusetts is one of a handful of progressive states that recognize the climate imperative and have supported a renewable energy future. The state leads in renewable generation, investment, and innovation. Dick, set the stage for our listeners how an influx of new generation, in this case, low-cost renewables, affects the capacity market, and specifically, the New England ISO. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, ISO New England uh, was really the first, um, the first ISO, ISO to implement uh, a forward capacity market using a, a descending clock option. And uh, we were sort of the pioneers in that sense in that you know, we were trying to procure capacity three years into the future um, and, and trying to predict what the energy profile is going to look like that far out is, it can be a little bit challenging. 
we really kind of have to do that in order to allow new generators enough time to uh, construct and become, you know, operational. So <clears throat> you're kind of in this uh, situation where you got to you got to try and predict what the future looks like, but uh, the current uh, the current times around us are changing so rapidly that it, it makes that uh, a very difficult uh, challenge. And so. Well, you know, the, the FCM work, we started, it was in 2010 when I was a, a capacity market clearing engine software architect. Uh, it was kind of an interesting story uh, because no one had done an FCM clearing engine before. Uh, ISO had hired out a consultant to do the work. And about six months before uh, the project was to be delivered, uh, we were informed that, uh, you know, that the, the vendor wouldn't be able to complete the clearing engine. So. Uh, there were a few of us in ISO New England who were brought into a room and told that we had six months to write this, design it and write this clearing engine. So it was kind of an on-the-spot thing. We all had to uh, jump in and figure out. And again, it was first one in the nation, so it was uh, it was quite a challenge. But we did it. Uh, and uh, and since you know since that time, it was working well for a few years. But then we started to see some real issues of overbuying of capacity by ISO New England. And uh, further research found that it was really uh, due to uh, a couple of things. You know, the three-year look ahead, of course, is always gonna be inaccurate at some level. But more importantly, there was capacity coming into the New England system that the ISO didn't even know existed. They weren't aware it was coming online. So as they were doing their calculations to figure out how much capacity they needed, they were overshooting by such a large amount because they weren't aware of all this other stuff happening behind the scenes. Uh, and so uh, what ended up happening is, you know, the ISO uh, started to realize what was going on and they, they completely changed their load forecasting to accommodate that you know, that behind the scene, behind the meter uh, solar panels that are coming onto the system. And at the same time, we also had corporate buyers. Uh, these are the folks who are going to places like Reba and Level 10, uh, guys like Facebook and Microsoft and, you know, a, a bunch of other companies who want to, you know, be 100% sustainable. And so we have all these forces. You have the behind the meter solar coming on. You have the green buyers coming in and buying capacity in large quantities. And then we have the state also coming in with their own energy goals and they're buying capacity as well. So all of these hidden capacity procurements that were going on behind the scenes, which ISO didn't know about, uh, created a real problem because, because of the amount of excess capacity that was coming onto the system. Uh, this, this actually creates a couple of problems, to be candid. One, uh, energy, energy consumers in New England are charged uh, for that capacity. So even if, it, uh, even if it's never used, um, the ISO still has to pay those generators to be available. Uh, and, and at one point, uh, you know, over a two-year period, it was almost a billion dollars in excess uh, amounts paid to you know, to these generators who actually never even came online. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. Let's pivot for a moment about some recent activities that you've been dealing with regarding the, um, the Massachusetts Attorney General's office. So, uh, and prior to preparing for this podcast, you've been neck deep in uh, meetings with them. 
you de- you've even described that tensions are running high in New England over the capacity of market problems, which were exacerbated by FERC's recent order to institute the minimum offer price rule on state subsidized resources in the PGM capacity market. For our listeners, can you break down what exactly is going on here? Yeah, so uh, I guess it was about three months ago, um, the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office uh, launched a essentially a petition campaign uh, calling for Massachusetts residents to sign the petition uh, requesting that ISO New England make changes to their market rules that would support the procurement of capacity, uh, green capacity, renewable capacity to meet uh, Massachusetts demand. Uh, And we've seen this a lot, you know, places are different states are setting goals like Rhode Island just set a goal of 100% renewable by 2040, I believe, and Maine is is doing something very similar as well. So we're seeing states around the nation who want to take a lead in addressing some of their climate concerns, uh, and they're doing so by purchasing green energy through, in many cases, RFPs. And uh, so that sort of sets the stage for uh, this tension to exist where these procurements outside of the wholesale market are taking place. And ISO New England, who's federally uh, regulated, uh, really doesn't have the um, ability, at least through its tariff, to satisfy those state targets, those state environmental targets, because uh, they were never given that opportunity uh, by the federal regulators, and they report to FERC. So here we see this tension building up between the federal regulators who ISO is uh, controlled by, and we have the state regulators who have their desires for, you know, to address climate change and procurement of renewable energy resources. And uh, they're, they're, it's like an impedance mismatch. They, uh, they're, they're unable to come together uh, largely because of this, what I'll call, you know, regulatory chasm that's, that really needs to be addressed. The situation in PJM with the FERC MOPA order from December 19th is just another, uh, a really just another example of the, the, the differences between the states uh, and the federal government. Basically, what, what FERC said is that uh, the state resources, which uh, are, are being procured through RFPs, are receiving uh, financial aid, basically, a subsidy. And if those resources were to uh, enter the capacity markets in New England, they could come in at a very low price because they're already receiving support, financial support outside of the markets. So they can come in and offer a very low price, and that ends up you know, really pushing the price, to, uh, the value capacity down to a point where the generators who have to buy fuel and have personnel on site to keep the turbines spinning, uh, they, they just simply aren't earning enough money in order to support their operations. So what FERC has said is if there's a renewable, and there's some kind of paraphrasing here, but uh, any renewable energy project, uh, new energy project, uh, that receives a subsidy from uh, a, a federal or a state subsidy, uh, and they come in different forms, RECs and other forms, but RFPs are the most prevalent right now, um, that they would be required to submit, if they're going to enter the capacity market, 
they're required to enter a price, a minimum offer price that is fairly high. In fact, so high that some people believe that the renewable energy resources will never receive a capacity payment because they effectively have to charge such a high price that they aren't able to compete as the capacity market uh, value drops. And that's the way capacity market works. It starts at a, a high number, uh, you know, like $15, and, and, and it keeps dropping. It's called a descending clock auction. And, and it, 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 the auction continues until uh, resources back out based on price. So you might have 40,000 megawatts of resources that you know lined up for the capacity market, but they're lining up for maybe 30,000 of actual capacity procurement. So you see, it's a very competitive situation. You got 10,000 more megawatts available than what you need. Uh, as the price drops, eventually uh, the, the offers basically get withdrawn from the table. And the auction continues until all until the offers that are still on the table uh, match uh, or exceed the uh, you know the required amount, say 30,000 megawatts. And in many cases, the auction actually hits the floor, which is you have you still at the very last step you have more capacity available than what you need. So you know, if, let's say you need 30,000. Well, if if you get to the end of the auction and it's 30, and you and you have 32,000 available, then you basically have to reduce the amount that you pay all of those generators because of the excess. It's sort of a you think of it as a proration. But that that's how that's how the situation is today. And FERC's and the FERC Moper uh, basically is uh, is uh, sort of a shot over the bow that says state you know states you're just not going to be able to participate in wholesale markets if you're going to continue to subsidize uh, you know renewable energy but here again you know states have their own goals in mind which is you know they want to address climate change and they want to get to 100% reliable renewable energy and so they're sort of left in a situation where the, the two are uh, looking across a chasm at each other and there is no bridge uh, and so this is create this is the tension we have today so it, and it it's difficult to see where this will all go dick if if I can chime in here and and kind of bring it back to your your meeting and your work uh with the uh Massachusetts attorney general's office, I was wondering if you could comment on what it was about Massachusetts specifically that you thought made it the right place to start in New England with these efforts. Was it that they were the most likely to respond well was it were they the ones that you know, most indicated a willingness to listen, you know, what went into that? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Matt. The, the real, uh, I think, you know, Massachusetts took the lead uh, in, in trying to resolve this tension between the states and the, and, and the federal regulators in getting, uh, you know, some movement, if you will, to have the wholesale markets um, change so that there would be some alignment or harmonization, if you will, between what the states want to achieve and what the federal government wants to achieve, uh, and so they've—you've seen it. We've seen a couple of things. We've had uh, we've had several senators from New England send uh, letters to FERC. Uh, we've heard a had attorney generals send letters to FERC from New England, 
And, and the last thing that happened that, that really, I think, set the stage was this online petition drive calling for ISO New England to change. That's, that was basically you know, them saying, enough's enough. We want to see some action here. And uh, so that petition drive really did set the stage for an opportunity to go in and talk with the Attorney General's office about a project that I've been working on, uh, which I submitted to the North American Energy Standards Board called the Always On Capacity Exchange. When I uh, approached uh, the, state, the, the AGO's energy division, they, uh, they were very interested to learn more about how this worked. And so I spent uh, about an hour and 40 minutes with them going over uh, the, the ACE design, uh, it, which basically attempts to do two things. So just, uh, just like when I was working at ISO New England and we got the call to solve the first FCM clearing engine problem, I, I addressed this challenge the same way, just as if I was at ISO New England. And I said, okay, well, if, if I have to have an object, objective function that includes two objectives, which is help the states meet their energy targets and ensure that the ISO has enough for, uh, of the right resources available for reliability, then uh, that would that would define essentially the problem space, if you will, to to address. And so, as I started to look at that space, I realized that the green buyers had already created a very nice solution in the form of their capacity exchanges. This is a case where a company like Facebook and Google and all the others come into the capacity exchange like Reba's and they indicate their desire to purchase some amount of power. And then from that, uh, there are generators who step forward and offer to satisfy that requirement in the form of a PPA. And so what that does is it establishes a long-term capacity commitment between the generator and the buyer themselves. Uh, and so, you know, that, that in essence um, sets us up for, um, for what could also work as a wholesale market operation. So what I did was I borrowed what Reba and Level 10 are doing, and I said, let's bring that into a wholesale market operation, assuming uh, like ISO New England would be running it, uh, and then that way you can address a couple of the issues I mentioned earlier. One thing, the ISA would have visibility to those procurements that are happening outside of the market today. And that capacity exchange would also enable states to come in and get, uh, acquire their, you know, whatever they need to meet their energy targets through the exchange, which the ISO would have visibility to. And that would then enable the ISO to know precisely how much capacity is out in their future and perhaps end up doing a much better job at forecasting what their real needs are when they can see just how much capacity is already lined up uh, within the system. So I went through that design with the Attorney General's office and uh, I think uh, I think that was a bit uh, it was a little bit outside the box. We don't, you know, the utility industry is not known for being innovative. Uh, they're really more risk averse. So what I was proposing, which is borrowed entirely from Reba and Level 10, is to 
take that, that capacity exchange concept and just turn that into a wholesale market capacity offering. How have your discussions uh, been so far? Uh, with your meeting with um, state decision makers, uh, what's your impression regarding the direction that the state will ultimately take? Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot in a lot in the stew right now. And uh, if you look at the different objectives, uh, let's just take the state uh, goals, state energy goals is one. Uh, so you got new, you know, all of the Northeast states have some form of a stated energy goal except for New Hampshire. And if you look at what people believe is a solution to hit those energy goals, those reno renewable energy goals, uh, we hear people talk about carbon pricing. And uh, in fact, New York ISO uh, has issued a proposal for carbon pricing. So that's that is certainly one approach uh, to uh, try to you know hit that renewable target, but it's um, you know there's no there's no perfect solution. Uh, every every one of these solutions has something that you wish you could change, and uh, like in the case of the New York ISO, uh, the way that that uh, proposal is laid out, uh, it basically says that. Anyone who uses electricity uh, will uh, end up paying an additional carbon tax for the fuels, the fossil fuels that were used to generate that electricity. And they would have to uh, pay that carbon tax uh, on electricity so long as there are fossil generators on the system producing power. Now today, we're you know, we're very dependent on these fossil fuels generators to keep the lights on. Uh, more times than not, it's a fossil fuel generator that is the, you know, what we call the marginal unit. It's, it's the one that is needed in order to meet the current demand. And those offer prices from those marginal units are what set the wholesale price of electricity. Now imagine if you had, you know, today we don't have a carbon tax. If you added a carbon tax, you know, you might go from paying, instead of paying $30 a megawatt hour, you could be paying $45 a megawatt hour. Whereas if you didn't have that carbon tax, uh, you wouldn't have that situation. What, what makes the New York proposal a little bit dicey, at least in my mind, is the fact that this carbon tax only applies to electricity. Which means that you know a, someone who's driving a you know a gasoline car today, um, you know you hope they'd be incented to you know cut back on their fossil fuel uh, carbon you know their carbon footprint by replacing it with an EV. Well, problem is you know if you if you cause the electricity price to skyrocket at the same time that gasoline prices are going down because demand is dropping, uh, it it sets the stage for a situation where a consumer has to decide, do I, you know, bite the bullet and buy an EV knowing that it, the price is going to go up for for electricity for years to come? Or do I just say, well, I'll just keep, burn, I'll just keep, you know, running my, my gasoline car because it's cheaper to do that.
And so that's why, you know, the, the power, uh, the carbon pricing proposal uh, over in New York, I think is, is very different. It's, it's very different from the carbon tax concept that, that's being discussed in Congress because the Congress uh, proposal addresses fossil fuels across the board. So you don't have that, that, that sort of that arbitrage situation between gasoline and, and uh, electricity that they'll have in New York if the carbon pricing proposal goes through. Right, right. <clears throat> so what does this mean for you and companies like you that service, that are service providers to the ISOs? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very tenuous time. Um, you know, it's a, lot, it's a lot of uncertainty right now. It doesn't matter really where you look. You know, you talk a generator today and the energy prices they're seeing just aren't enough to sustain them. And it's because the renewables that are out there supplying power are doing so uh, at an offer price of zero. So they're willing to accept whatever the clearing price is, knowing pretty likely that it's gonna be set by a fossil fuel. So they're gonna generate it, so they're gonna make money. Um, so there's some uncertainty amongst generators today. There's uncertainty amongst investors uh, about which, um, you know, what's going to happen with this tension between the federal and the state regulators. And so uh, companies like mine are sort of stuck in the middle here. We're waiting to see what the direction is going to be. And um, at this juncture, we're not just, you know, everyone seems to be talking a lot but there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, forward progress in trying to resolve the matter. Now, I, I do have to admit though, the place we're seeing the most activity uh, is with the green buyers, you know, the Googles, the Microsofts. And, and here in New England, it's more like the Raytheons and the New Balance and the Akamai's, they're also doing this as well, they're local companies. Uh, so they, they are basically, you know, pro proceeding down their own path in, in acquiring this capacity uh, without regard to, you know, what, what's happening between the feds and the states. So in my view, you know, that's, that's ultimately going to be a pressure point that I suspect is going to um, come into play and hopefully we'll see some resolution that everyone can, you know, can find acceptable going forward. Ted, you mentioned that it's, it's a lot of talk and not a lot of progress and, you know, maybe the green buyers are the one who's going to take action. But, you know, do you have any sense of an anticipated timeline where you, you, you finally do expect push to come to shove? Or is, is this going to be, you know, the can that keeps getting kicked down the road? Well, that's a great question, Matt. I, I, I think if you're looking for, you know, leading indicators, uh, the best one I can think of is essentially the, that FERC order that was issued to PJM that basically said, uh, you know, you guys have to s submit a filing to FERC. I think it's in it's either in March or May, I can't remember, but it's, it's, it's this year, it's before the summer, where PJM is going to have to come forward with their proposed solution to, to, to uh, address the, the order that they're now living under. So I would say, you know, before June, uh, and largely because of the, you know, the FERC-MOPR action and, and the require, required filing by PJM that I, and, and there's been a, an awful lot of pushback, by the way, on the FERC order. Uh, if, if you go to the, you know, FERC e-library and you do a search, you'll find that there's been quite a bit of filings 
uh, in opposition to the uh, FERC order, but also a lot of confusion about how to even apply the FERC order. So um, something is going to happen before June in some form or fashion, I suspect. It's a sad reality that every state is different as it relates to regulations, transmission, and distribution. Do you get the sense that other ISOs are watching, and do you think they may adopt a similar course of action in the future? Uh, yeah, there's definitely uh, the, the other ISOs, and let me be careful here, not, not all of them, okay, because some, ISO, some ISOs are different. For example, ERCOT is its own entity, and they don't have a capacity market. But if you look at the markets uh, like PJM, New York ISO, and, and ISO New England, they're really the ones who's, that are right at the front lines of the battle today. And um, this tension is, is becoming very, it's, it's very visible. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a recent announcement that came out of uh, Connecticut uh, where they, they actually talked about the possibility of leaving the uh, ISO New, Eng New England uh, wholesale markets. And if that were to happen, that would, you know, that would not be a very positive indicator of uh, any near-term solution for this, uh, for this tension that we're seeing. Uh, Illinois did something very similar. Uh, they made a similar announcement when they saw the FERC order come out. So other ISOs are clearly facing the same kind of challenges that ISO New England is facing. Uh, not ERCOT, and, and Cal ISO is actually doing their own thing. They, it looks like they're going to establish a central buyer, uh, you know, for, for capacity. Uh, and, and that would be the approach they would take to try and resolve the matter. But here in, uh, the, here in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic, between the three ISOs that are here, this is where the, uh, the battle lines are drawn, if you will, and trying to you know resolve this this very important problem that is really at the heart of the energy transition, and I think is largely is is a result of the energy transition as well. Well, it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, you're in the center of the storm, Dick. No doubt about it. Um, I think my head is still spinning. Matt, how about you? Uh, you said it, but that's that's why I'm glad we have experts like Dick in the uh, the energy central community that we can rely upon to keep us educated and up to date. Let me just say one thing, guys. You know, I have to tell you, Energy Central is such an important part of the consciousness of this industry. Uh, it, it, it's like plugging into uh, it's like plugging into a real-time network of information and discussion on topics that ultimately are going to, in some way, influence the outcome. So. Uh, you know, Energy Central is uh, it's it's the it's the place where I think some of the ideas will be born, and maybe some of the negotiation actually occurs um, online. It would it'd be really fascinating if if we you know if Energy Central could ultimately be the sort of the, the catalyst that helps uh, bring all this stuff to uh, a, a resolution. It'd be, it'd be a fun uh, fun thing to be part of too. Well, we're working on it. Thank you for that. You're doing a good job, too. Yeah, doing a good job. Thank you for that. So once again, thank you to our guest, Dick Brooks, for his thought leadership and his committed work to the energy field. You can always reach Dick through the Energy Central platform, where he, where he welcomes your questions and comments. I also want to thank our contributing partners of Energy Central, ESRI, the Environmental System Research Institute, 
ESRI is an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, WebGIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Guidehouse, formerly Navigant, a leading global provider of consulting services to the public and commercial markets with, with expertise in energy, sustainability, and infrastructure. To Oracle Utilities, providing best-in-class utilities management solutions to improve reliability, service, and safety for electric, water, and natural gas companies. To Atonics Digital, a Black & Veatch company. Atonics Digital software helps companies simplify asset performance management by putting data to work. And lastly, Bentley Systems, a software development company that supports the professional needs of those responsible for creating and managing the world's infrastructure projects. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. And see you next time at Energy Central's Power Perspectives Podcast.